Um, welcome to the Free Rohingya Coalition Genocide Podcast, uh, 21st of July, 2020. Um, our guest uh, today is uh, a very distinguished um, genocide scholar, uh, Daniel Fierstein, professor of uh, genocide studies, and also he is the founder and director of a genocide study uh, in Argentina. Um, he was um, elected president of the International Association of Genocide Scholars. Um, it's the, uh, the largest uh, body of uh, scholars of uh, atrocities around the world. And uh, one of his major contributions um, just uh, had been published in English language. I shouldn't say just, it's been published uh, a number of years ago, but a um, long time ago in Spanish and also translated into a few uh, different international languages. And the English version is entitled Genocide as Social Practice, uh, wherein he argued, um, you know, genocide as a policy of social engineering, um, destruction, destroying existing social relations, social groups, uh, reorganizing society in accord with the vision of, uh, you know, a typically racist uh, vision of the perpetrators. Um, uh, Daniel, um, uh, very, very welcome. And thank you uh, uh, for agreeing to speak um, on this very important subject. Um, explain to, um, to us and um, to activist community what you mean by genocide as social practice you know i thought like the, the many people think like genocide just about killing people apparently that's yeah. not the case okay thank you sally and yes one of the main ideas of all of my work is trying to put the genocide as a to understand genocide as a technology of power that's the, that's the idea of, of thinking of genocide as a social practice so the the idea to understand that the killing, the death, is a tool, is not the objective, and is a tool to destroy identity. That, that was the very first thinking of, of the, the founder, of, of the creator of the genocide concept, who is the, the, the Polish Jew lawyer, Rafael Lemkin. When, when he defined genocide, his main idea was that genocide was a way to destroy the identity of the oppressed and to impose the identity of the oppressor on them. So killing is the tool, killing and particularly the terror that killing produce is the tool to transform identity, but to transform identity of the survivors. Right. So that's the main idea beyond the, this, this concept of genocide as a social practice, that it's a way to transform and to reorganize societies, the, the whole social fabric. Right. Um, you know, like uh, one of our mutual friends and colleagues, um, Professor Penny Green uh, at the um, Queen Mary University of London, and uh, she directs and initiated the... Uh, International State Crime Initiative. I believe, like some years ago, um, that you were the, um, um, you know, memorial lecture uh, deliverer. You know, like a distinguished lecturer. Uh, you de deliver annual lecture on the subject of genocide. 
And uh, she takes the um, um, critical criminological perspective, um, you know, arguing that um, genocide is a, a, a state crime. And um, do you see any, um, you know, contradiction or mutually exclusionary definition of works here when you say, you know, genocide is a social engineering, uh, the use of a technology uh, to change an identity of a group or destroy and whoever is left behind. And um, how, how, how do you see these two approaches, you know, one uh, critical criminological approach to the phenomena of genocide and another, your approach, more sociological, yeah? Um, and but how I do think, they... Yeah. Yes, I think both are perfectly complementary. I think they are complementary because uh, actually genocide, it is a state crime. It is one of the possible state crimes, but it is very particular because of this question that, that the, the, the killing are the tool. And that's, that's fundamental. And it is not in contradiction with the criminological approach because the criminological approach is trying to understand how, how the state behave. And, and that's, that's complementary. That's complementary about how to understand this, this kind of technology of power. And, 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 and how it is different from other ways of, of even from for war or for other other ways of, of state crimes, because the, the main difference is this intentionality, this decision to transform the identity of a group, and it is this connection, this more, more deep connection with with the social practices. Right. Um, you earlier mentioned uh, Raphael Lemkin. You know the um, Polish Jewish, um, you know, lawyer, and essentially the intellectual force behind um, the creation of the Convention on the Punishment, sorry, Prevention and Punishment of Genocide, uh, or the Genocide Convention, right? And um, um, let's let's go back to his um, original conception. You know, I mean, er, uh, the, the, my own. Uh, understanding was that Lemkin was inspired to address the question of, you know, homicide versus genocide. You know, the group, uh, the population groups. Yeah? The key, as you know, is the gr group yeah? with yes. distinct identity, whereas homicide is a, a single human in person being being killed. So he asked a question when, um, you know, the uh, former uh, the Turkish home minister, I believe, was killed in Berlin. You know, this was the interwar years, you know, the in, uh, the, the between First and Second World Wars. And a uh, the Armenian uh, killer or assassin was tried and punished, right, uh, the, for... Um, having pulled the trigger on the um, ex-foreign minister from Turkey living in or traveling through Berlin. And so he asked a question. Here was a case where one individual, the killer, obviously, 
uh, was found criminally guilty of taking the life of a single individual, Turkish in this case, who he rightly believed was involved in killing, you know, like hundreds of thousands of Armenian people in Turkey yeah, uh, during uh, just before the First World War. And, and yet, he said many, you know, um, the perpetrators of mass crimes, of which genocide is considered the most heinous, yeah, um, they walk, they've, they've roamed the world. You know, like Henry Kissinger, he was involved, you know this, and people like Pinochet, he, yeah, okay, he was detained in UK, but eventually he was released, right? So, so in, a, in, in, within our world, before and after the Holocaust, yeah, there are so many perpetrators with blood of millions of human individuals on their hands because of their policies or because of their commanding positions in these atrocity crimes. But they walk. So that was something that had um, turned in, into a successful madman who gifted all of us this genocide convention. Yeah? Can you explain the difference between, say, the crimes committed against individuals and the crimes committed against groups of populations. How, how are these two different? And why are the uh, you know, criminal thresholds so different? Yeah, that's one of the great contributions of Rafael Lemkin. So trying to understand that the, the, juridical, the juridical viewpoint is, I would say, it thinks about social action like the philosophers of the 18th or even 17th century. So it is two or three centuries ago and the, so, the social sciences uh, don't think in social action in such very uh, atomistic view like, like the juridical way. So the idea in the law is that one person commits some action against other persons. So it is mainly about the individuals. And what Lemkin pointed out is, how is it possible in this case of, uh, of the, the, the court in Berlin in, in the 20s, how is it possible that the court is judging a person who killed one individual, but that individual was responsible for killing hundreds of thousands of people or even million even more than a million people so uh, that's why he decided to to create this new concept trying to understand the need for for the law and also for the international law to understand that attacking a groups groups of people is not only something that were out of the universe of the law but also a better way to understand social action because social action is very concerned with the groups. So that's one of the great contributions. But on the other hand, Lemkin included two other very important concepts. One is that genocide is not only the attack of a group, 
but it is the attack to the identity of the group. So can, the, you, the can, target, you further, can you further the target is the identity. It's not only the 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 corpses. It's not only the the the, the people, but the identity of that people. And the yeah, third yeah. fundamental element is the question of the oppression, which is also fundamental to understand genocide. The question that the identity which is attacked is the identity of the oppressed. So the genocide is an, a tool for oppression. Right, so gen genocide it, in and of itself, it's a means, yeah? It, it, it is not, not yet an end genocide itself exactly. is as you're saying is a technology of a means of power to accomplish a goal that is beyond you know killing people right and um, um and in why do you use the um the words um you know demo, uh, social engineering because uh, I, I, the reason i asked is that i am um, study with the um uh, the early um, specialist on uh, SS and Himmler. As you know, SS was the primary instrument, um, mm -hmm. you know, by Hitler, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to exterminate, um, you know, a Jewish and other victim populations, right? And uh, he used it uh, back in 1950s that this was um, the American, German American, um, you know, uh, the, the graduate student at Harvard uh, by the name of uh, Robert uh, Kale. Uh, he was my teacher in Wisconsin. Um, he was posted in Berlin, um, you know, right after or towards the end of the Second World War, after, um, or, you know, be, before the collapse of um, uh, the Third Reich. And he became one of the um, intelligence um, surveyor for the American um, military. And because he was bilingual, German and English, and so he was assigned to interrogate um, uh, mid-ranking and um, junior-level SS officers. Yeah? And uh, he used um, one of the um, uh, archives out of the, I believe, like 12 chambers at Nuremberg uh, and wrote early thesis on Himmler and SS. Now, this was back in 1950. Yeah? And he grappled, I mean, he passed away a few years ago in his like, late 80s. Um, he grappled with the idea of demographic engineering, you know, because uh, the genocide was com um, uh, committed um, at the height of the German scientific advancement, right? Um, in, in, in the uh, mid-century, last in the last century. So he, but he was quite dissatisfied with his earlier conception of genocide or SS. He called SS as social engineers. Yeah? So very mm -hmm. similar to your idea, but he arrived at a, um, from a, a less, uh, you know, theoretically eloquent way because he was primarily a historian. Yeah? And mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, uh, so can you elaborate on what you mean by social engineering? Yes, I, I mean different things. First of all, genocide is a way to use the terror, terror, use the terror yeah. to, to transform identity because the terror is the, I, I could say, the most uh, effective 
tool to transform identities because when something is putting our life at risk, so the, the possibility that we change the way in which we uh, behave, in which we have different relations with the other is, is very quick because at, at the end we are animals and what put our life at risk is, is too strong to, to be able to change our behavior very, very quick. So that, that's the first way, but it has different elements. So I, I used to say that there are three main techniques in this use of terror. First is the, the ambiguity of the construction of the others. So the idea that everyone could be persecuted. So it's, uh, when, when you analyze in, in a comparative way genocide through history, you can see in modernity that, that each time the ambiguity of the construction of the other is, is even uh, more, more and more important, it is, is more and more ambiguous. But even in Nazism, it, it was really ambiguous. There, there were a lot of, of, of groups persecuted by Nazism and even the accusation regarding the Jews, it, it, it was, mainly about the Judaization. So it was not only the Jews, but everyone who could be conceived as a Jew, even if he's or she is not. So if you analyze, for example, the national security doctrine in, in Latin America, it is even more ambiguous, this idea of the subversive that could be really anyone. So that's the first technique, the, this question of the ambiguity. It is connected with the second technique, which is the, the, I could say, the instigation to betrayal. So the idea is if, if everyone could be persecuted, if the ambiguity produced this situation that everyone is at risk, so how to escape from that persecution? So the way that the, the state proposes a way to escape is the betrayal, is the betrayal of the to, to, to point out who is the real enemy, trying to, to put the label out of myself. So this second technique has the consequence of breaking all the, the possibilities for reciprocity, all the possibilities for solidarity. So the construction of, of a generalization of, of distrust. So the, the, the destruction of the possibility to trust in other person. So that's the main way to break social relations of reciprocity. And that was quite effective because if there is no way to create some relationship with others because anyone could be the enemy anyone could be the one who will betray us or the one who we are going to betray. So that's break these possibilities of, of cooperation. So I think this, this connection between these three techniques, ambiguity, the question of betrayal and distrust is the way in which terror works destroying and transforming the social fabric.
Right. Can I interject here something? Because it is really fascinating because it seems to me that you're taking the Lemkinian conception to a, to a far more sophisticated um, elaboration. Because I think like a, you look at the uh, Nazi genocide, you know, where victims are multiple groups, not just Jewish. Yeah. Uh, although the, uh, uh, the the Jewish victims, and then rightly received the um, you know uh, greatest recognition. Yeah. But but at times um, uh, other victim groups feel at the expense of recognition of their group suffering. You know. Uh, fair enough. Uh, like say like uh, Sinti, Romas, uh, Polish, uh, Russians, Czechs. Right. Uh, the, the, these uh, groups were also um, decimated on the basis of their identities, and and you know the first victim of the uh, the Nazi genocide was really communists and um, you know left wing uh, the people who refused to allow the Nazis to break their solidarity. Yeah. So when you break the solidarity, possibilities of resistance were preempted, preemptively destroyed. Right. And uh, uh, so what I'm, I'm thinking is that, you know, you use the word othering here, you know, uh, they're coming from um, a lot of like post-colonial discourses, but the, um, a lot of people within the genocide studies, uh, I noticed, use the word dehumanization, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the way you describe it is that, you know, genocide is actually a, pre, um, you know, not simply uh, the, you know, the, the group decimation starting from the identity, but it's a destruction of the possibility of human solidarity, collectivity, a sense of like, you know, where we are social beings and, and the chance of, you know, the, the chance to be social, in other words, to be in trustful relations with others is preemptively destroyed. Uh, by the um, genocidal process. And, and in that process, it is, you know, the humanity of both the perpetrators and the victims that is being destroyed. So this dehumanization seems to me cuts both ways. But usually we always see perpetrators as keeping their humanity status alive coming up with elaborate justification and dehumanizing and demonizing or national securitizing other groups, right? Am I, am I correct in um, you know, extracting this assumption that you are saying that this process destroys humanity of both the victims and the perpetrators? Yeah, absolutely, Sammy. I would say more, it destroys... Yeah, humanity of the whole society, not right. only because the problem of which I call the, the binary way, the binary view of genocide, which is uh, essentialistic in some way and, and totally uh, non-historic view of genocide is this idea that you have two different groups and then the rest of society. But that's not really true. That's not really about how genocide war. So, for example, when, when we focus on Nazism, usually the, 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 the thinking starts in, in 41 or 42 with the extermination process of the Jews, 
and, and the Sinti and Roma and other groups, but uh, it is not so common to focus on the 30s, which is quite important to understand Nazism. So the concentration camp system during the 30s, starting just in 1933, at the beginning of the process, with thousands of concentration camps in which the main target was the dissidents, was the homosexuals, was different groups in German society. And, and not many of them were killed, but hundreds of thousands of them were interned in concentration camps, were subjected to torture, and then they were, they were liberated to spread terror through society. So that's a very fundamental way in which genocide work, just spreading terror in the whole society. And, and then the, the, the groups targeted, the groups chosen for killing is just a message for the whole society. So in my opinion, it's quite important to understand that the main target of genocide is the whole society. So as you have said, including the perpetrators, is a way to dehumanize the perpetrators, but it is a way to dehumanize the whole society. Even the people who are, who are afraid, who are terrorized, even if they were never, they were never touched directly, they were never sent to concentration camps, but they know that they could have sinned they could be persecuted and that's the way in which his or her identity are being transformed just breaking this possibility for cooperation and dehumanizing them so i think this is very fundamental because if we are not taking this approach at the end we are thinking in the same way that the genociders think because well, the main the main idea of the Nazis was that the German or the European society and community uh, it was a community that couldn't include the Jews or the Sinti or the Roma or the political dissidents or the Jehovah Witnesses or the the people with disabilities or the homosexuals. So when we are creating the we are constructing a memory of that process that continues uh, supporting this idea of different communities that weren't part of the same community it is the way that the genocide think and it it could be think the same regarding the case of of itihadism in turkey and it is the same in the cases of Indonesia or in the case of Latin America. So the idea of the genocide is that the people who live in our community, they don't deserve, not all of them deserve to be part of our community. But some memories of genocide, even denouncing the killing, finally are saying the same. So in my opinion, the, one of the most important elements in the Lemkinian viewpoint in, in Lemkin's contribution was this idea that at the end, with exclusion of, of colonialism, which is another thing, 
most of modern genocide are the partial destruction of the own national group. So the group is the same in the perpetrator and in the victim, it's the same group. And the genocidal thinking is that they are not the same group no. and that they have to be killed because they are not part of the community. Right. Um, you know, some would argue that um, um, the enslavement of, uh, you know, millions of Africans or others, you know, in, in modern, you know, today, at, uh, t you know, t t t year 2020, we still have modern forms of indentured labor, uh, you know, uh, you know, sex trafficked, uh, you know, victims, men and women across the world, right? And also the classical or more like a modern colonialism starting around the 15th or six, uh, 16th century, 17th century, with the rise of um, European uh, royally chartered corporation, you know, so Swedish East India Company, like Dutch East India, Burm uh, sorry, yeah, the British, French, you know, the European powers begin to build up these economic institutions that were blessed by the church itself, the, the Catholic Church, and, um, you know, administratively and politically supported by the crowns in different countries, the Christian kingdoms, right? And um, some argue that these colonial, you know, mercantilist movements with these like, you know, economic powerhouses and the, um, you know, the genocidal institutions set up by Hitler uh, all the way to 1945, they are not qualitatively different. Uh, they exist on a continuum. There's always a racial element, the element of, you know, like a reified uh, um, um, uh, thinking that uh, race is a category. Therefore, we cannot embrace the Jews or the Romers or the Rohingyas. Do you see what I mean? And so yeah. how, how do you um, see the genocidal understanding informing the social movements against uh, racial discrimination, you know, sex discrimination, you know, LG against uh, LGBT people, uh, and and also gender discrimination, because you know everything starts from the um, conceptual discrimination and then goes on to policy exclusion, disenfranchisement, disempowerment. The next thing you know, the group is utterly vulnerable because it's been disenfranchised layer after layer and then then they are ready for the slaughter how can can genocidal understanding thinking of genocidal processes as a continuum rather than an event or acts you know can they be helpful with say black lives matter yeah i think of course there is a lot of connections, but I think uh, we have to distinguish between or among different uses of genocide. So when I say genocide is a social practice, a technology of power, power it is not only one. 
technology of power. But I, I have identified uh, four different ways, and I, I, I could say maybe we can we should think about the fifth one in the 21st century. So Let's hear all five one, of them. Yeah. Fa first, we have the constituent genocide. So the use of the genocidal social practice to create states. And I would say that almost all of our states were created through a genocidal social practice. So most of the people who lived in that, in that territory were killed in order to, to create a community, to create a new community. It was the state, it was the story of the US, but the story of my own country too, Argentina, but we can say it is also the story of Spain or France. I would say most of the countries in the world, not all of them, but most of them. So that's one technology, one way of using genocide as a technology of power. The second is the colonialist use of genocide. So the, the use of the, of the killing and the destruction of identity to, to conquer a soil, to conquer a territory, to conquer the goods of that territory, to, to, ex, to, to be able to, to, to take the, those goods, to, to take the, the wealth, of, of some territory, so it is, it is what you were, you were talking about, that this is one way, exactly the use of, of the genocidal social practice as a tool of colonialism. Then we have the post-colonial use of genocide as a social practice, just as a, a tool to to confront with the liberation movements, the, the counter-insurgency projects, particularly the French in, in Indochina, the French in Algeria, the US in the whole Latin American uh, region. And it is connected with the fourth type, which is the, the, the main uh, technology of power I have researched, which is which I call the reorganizer genocide. So the reconstruction, the reorganization of the social fabric through the use of terror, which is the case of Nazism, is the case, the, the most important cases are the reorganizer ones, Nazism, the Turkish Itihadism against the Armenians, Syrians, and Greeks, even the, the Indonesian case, most of the national security doctrine. So the most known cases are this type of the reorganizer genocide. But I, I think we should focus in the 21st century in a fifth way, which I haven't developed too much yet because it's very new, which is the use of this technology of power to, to destroy to dismantle a community so i'm thinking about the former yugoslavia case which is the, the the destruction of the possibility of a community in this region of former yugoslavia but also we could think about the situations now in mexico or in colombia or even in the middle east with the case of syria or even in the case of libya so what about they, they, are connected, they are connected with colonialism, but it is different than in the past because in the, in the 19th century, the idea was, was to conquer the territory through 
these killings. But now the idea is just to control some, some places in the territory, just to control the resources, but not the whole territory. So to create some kind of anomia, so to destroy the whole fabric, but not to reorganize it, not to conquer the whole territory, but to destroy any possibility of, of a community there to be able to take the resources in a cheaper way. So I think it is a fifth way. I, I haven't put a name on that yet, but I think that's different from the other four. Even if it is some kind of neo-colonialism, it's not the same than the classical colonialism in the 19th century. So, so basically we are talking about uh, different ends or different objectives of the use of um, you know, power as a technological or technology of destruction. Yeah? But you, you talk about like a, um, a reorganization. You know, as you very well know, um, Lemkinian conception of genocide has two parts. One is the destruction of the existing social relations or social order, uh, including, or perhaps and most importantly, the identity of the group that is singled out for destruction or groups. And then you said, um, or Lemkin went on in, in the same essay to argue that there is a reconstitution, reconstruction. Yeah? And, mm -hmm. and um, uh, I want to move from uh, original and, and highly sophisticated intellectual framework to a more practical, you know, practical in the sense of, um, you know, uh, law and judicial, you know, juridical um, uh, processes. Yeah. And the, I, I'm, I, I, I suppose, um, you know, the original creator or drafters of the genocide convention were not necessarily uh, high-minded because they all had um, skeletons in their closets you know at the time of the uh, un's creation genocide conventions drafting you know like a name all these like, original founders of the united nations that control the uh, security council with their veto powers they are all, you know, um, by any objective measure and standards, they're all a criminal state, you know. Um, the, 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 you know, the French controlled Algeria and French Indochina are still intact. Um, the, you know, uh, colonies were still under the uh, French control. And the United States, the entire American South, um, there was an apartheid state. Apartheid, Jim Crow, they call it, but it's nonetheless, for all intents and purposes, it was an apartheid condition. And then you've got, you know, the um, uh, uh, the Soviet Russia by 1945, so Stalin had well established gulags, yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, you know the, the 30 mil, uh, you know, 30 million already perished, and so these criminal states that survived the second world war the victors they came up with this genocide convention they came up with the universal declaration of human rights yeah and and judging from the extremely poor record of 75 years in promoting either human rights or preventing genocide yeah i could only 
you know, come to a sad conclusion. These powers did not mean human rights when they pronounced human rights, or these powers did not mean that, that there must be no repeat of the Nazi genocide. And so out of this context, the Genocide Convention, the conception of genocide was encoded as a law. But we have seen you know, only three cases, one pending at the International Court of Justice with Myanmar case against the Rohingya. How would you assess you know, or put it this way, what is lost in the transla translation from the intellectual conception to a legal doctrine or law in or written into law book? What was lost and to what practical impact? Well, different elements are new yeah. because one thing is the theoretical viewpoint and what is what is what's lost in this way, in this theoretical uh, translation from the sociology to the law. And the second element is geopolitics. So uh, two different elements. So from a theoretical viewpoint, I think that the main element that was lost is this, this binary understanding and essentializing genocide. Uh, through not only through the exclusion of some groups, but mainly through this impossibility to understand the genocide as a destruction of the the own society in which the perpetrators live, which is clearly the case. The, the case in in discussion during years it was the Cambodian case because this was quite clear that it was the situation, but I think that the Cam Cambodia is not the exception, but Cambodia is one clear example of the reorganizer genocide and the, the way in which we can understand Cambodia, we should understand most of the cases of the 20th century. So that's, that was the main problem in the translation to law, but it, it was not a real problem because the, this idea of the partial destruction of the national group is included in the convention. And no word of the convention is against this interpretation. So, so it is just a question that, that the judges could interpret the convention in that way. And that was possible, for example, in Argentina, but not only in Argentina also. There is a vote in the extraordinary chambers of Cambodia from the Cambodian judges. There was a vote in dissident in dissidence with the international judges that just understanding the Cambodian case in this way. And there were some uh, sentences um, also in, in Bangladesh understanding the same idea. So I think that that was a problem but it was a problem not exactly in the convention but in the ways in which the international judges interpreted the convention but then here it, it we we go to the second element which is geopolitics what you were saying that the the members of the security council i would say that if we include germany probably we have the, the worst genociders in, the, in war history, or at least in the last three or two or three centuries. So it was quite problematic to have 
a convention to prevent and punish genocide and at the same time the, the administration of this convention is in the hands of the responsible of mass killing all over the world. So that's why I could say that the, the genocide convention was interpreted in such a way that it was almost non-applicable to any case. So always there is an excuse uh, with the exception of some cases in the global south, which the the the, the genociders have not enough power to to to, to uh, be able to prevent their own judgment. So I think that the most interesting outcome of the Genocide Convention was not the international courts, but the possibility to be used in different national courts. Even national courts judging their own cases, or the possibility that through the universal jurisdiction, other national courts could be able to judge cases in other countries. It was it was what happened, for example, with, with the human rights movement in Argentina and also in Chile and other countries, also in Colombia, that were presenting cases in different court, national courts. Uh, the case of Argentina was really important in that way. So cases were presented in Sweden, in Italy, in Germany, in France, in, even in the United States, in Israel, I would say in, in, in more than 10 countries. So in some cases, the judges or the national courts decided to move on. And it was not possible to, to punish the perpetrators, but at least to start proceedings, to, to uh, be able to not, uh, to, to be able to, to stop the, the travels of these genociders because of the risk that they could be subjected to law in other countries through Interpol. So I think that was the most interesting element, the possibility to involve the societies in these uh, juridical, juridical discussions in, in each country. So I'm not so confident really in the international intervention. I will say that at almost the opposite. So at the, at the end of the Cold War, the human rights, uh, even the, the genocide convention or, or the crimes against humanity uh, uh, definition was used to justify military interventions in a very neo-colonialist way. So I think that the most interesting outcome of the genocide concept and the genocide convention was a tool to understand the use of terror and the use of killing and to empower the different movements in different countries trying to, to punish, to create judgments and to advance the possibility to, to, to create trials for the perpetrators. So uh, I think it, it, it was difficult this this connection between the theoretical production and the world of geopolitics.
Right. Uh, I think it was interesting in, in, in the developments in different countries more than in the international arena. So, um, taking your, uh, you know, rightly skeptical view towards the effectiveness of the application of the Genocide Convention within the UN structures of uh, uh, judicial processes. Um, what is your view still on this, you know, the intellectual component of the convention, the subjective element, you know, because uh, the, your old or former colleague, uh, William Shabazz, you know, who is also a past uh, president, and I think the International Association of uh, Genocide Scholars, I think like four or five presidents, including yourself, um, sign a public um, um, denunciation, basically, of William Shabazz of uh, defending the indefensible, yeah? uh, the, you know, fudging the reality, basically. And, um, you know, I, I was at the um, ICJ when he was making the, uh, um, the argument in, uh, in the case, uh, the, the Gambia versus Myanmar case on the allegations of, of genocide against the Rohingya. He was saying, you know, the you know, partial destruction, yeah? Even that, he said that the number of people that the uh, Gambia team presented were victims or killed, you know, were not really substantial, you know. So, I mean, substantial is, is a subjective word, you know what I mean? Do we have to wait until one third of the population were decimated as in the case of Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, right? And, or like, you know, in the case of, um, you know, the um, Srebrenica and other places, you know, about 8,000 Muslim men and young boys were killed yeah, uh, in a span of a few days. Yeah. So, but the genocide scholars, you know, he's not just a lawyer, but he's also a scholar. Um, people who should know, professionals who should know better and, you know, and operate at a higher ethical planes based on their, you know, inter, uh, professional expertise because they know. Why, why, do, why do they stick with these numbers? And why do they split the hair, you know, um, intent if there is no smoking gun like the, uh, you know, onesie project, you know, the final solution? We can't prove the genocide, you see? So how would you handle the situation where, you know, these very intelligent professionals manipulate the weaknesses in the convention? and further damage the victim community. How do you handle that? I mean, you know, one way you handle it is that uh, issued a public denunciation as fellow past residents. Yeah, that's one way, but he's not held to account. But this is not just him, but the whole apparatus of legal uh, professions that get um, you know, sucked into this legal hair splitting at the expense of the victims. Yeah, sorry, I have to go, so I, I will answer this because yeah. it's quite important, but then it is 
the last one, because I have to go in five minutes somehow. But uh, yes, I think there are two very different things in the, in the discussion with Bill Shabbos, because one thing is the theoretical discussion. And we have discussing for years with him, so I could say we have a, a totally different approaches on genocide. So he thinks that genocide is not a real concept that we should forget genocide and he has a very uh, I would say a very narrow definition of genocide and, and very uh, essentialistic and this idea of the numbers which they are not in any world in the convention so it's something that Shabbos thinks but it is not it is really not in the convention there is no one world regarding the question of numbers or percentages or whatever. But that's one discussion, and I think it's a very legitimate discussion, and, and we can continue arguing about the different understandings of genocide. But secondly, in, 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 the, in the other way, we have this ethical question, which is totally different, because we can debate we can discuss in, 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 in the scholarly world, in academic conferences, whatever, in the classes. But even beyond what do you think about what genocide is, so going to a court, being a, 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 a scholar of genocide studies just to defend the genocideurs, explaining that what happened is not genocide, even when you know that hundreds of thousands of people were killed. So I think it's totally unethical. So even if we are in the opposite side, so for example, I'm very, I'm very critic of the concept of crimes against humanity. And I think it is really problematic, exactly the opposite that Shabbat thinks that he's very critical of the genocide concept. And in my opinion, the genocide concept is a great concept, theoretically speaking, and crimes against humanity is really problematic. And I would prefer just not to use it. But I would never think about the possibility to go into trial to defend a perpetrator of crimes against humanity and explaining in, in, in a defense of that perpetrator, why I think that crimes against humanity is a wrong concept, because beyond the, 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 the academic discussion, I would be supporting the killers. So that is something that you can't do if you are a scholar of genocide studies, because the government of Myanmar is plenty of lawyers that could defend the state who are specialized in defending these kind of states. But genocide scholars, beyond our discussions, are uh, our main uh, even ethical activity is on behalf of the victims. So I could understand if he decides not to give testimony in favor of the victims because his problems with the genocide concept, okay, he could just go out and leave someone else to give that testimony. But going to the court 
on behalf of the perpetrator. So I think it's absolutely unethical. So I mean, that's, and it is beyond the theoretical discussion that I think it is legitimate. I disagree with Chavez, but I think it's a very legitimate discussion, the discussion I could have with Chavez regarding the uses of different concepts. But I think that going to the court, going to the trial, and just to defend the responsibles of, of killing of thousands of people, and he knows that, so that's unacceptable. That's why we decided as, as former presidents of the IAGS just to, to write this public letter to Bill Chavez, just asking him to, to think about it. Well, Professor Fierstein, it's been an extremely enriching discussion, and uh, hopefully we will uh, have another session uh, at your convenience. And thank you Absolutely. so much, and I'm uh, sorry to hold you yeah. up. <laughs> thank you.